Today on the Dad the Best I Can show. You know, my dad said to me, uh, probably the greatest lesson anybody's ever said to me. He said, it's your scholarship. And, um, you know, if you want to go somewhere else and we didn't have a lot of money at the time. So I would have been, it's not like I could have just switched and he would have picked up tuition. I mean, it was just, it wasn't a good financial time for us. So I don't know what I would have done, but he said, it's your scholarship. If you want to quit, I'm not going to keep you from doing it. But, um, I want you to know that if you quit now, then as you go through life, when times are tough, you're going to find it easier and easier to quit. And I hope that you don't make that decision. And of course I was, he put it right back on me, which is what he should have done. I got out of the car angry because he didn't give me an out. And I realized, you know, there's, I can't, there's no way I can, how can I walk away from this with what he just said to me? You know, I'm, I'm basically setting myself up for failure later. Welcome to the Dad the Best I Can show. My name is Rob Roseman, who wants to be a millionaire legend, Chicago futures trader, Vegas poker pro. Now I'm a dad to three kids, ages seven, five, and two. Phew, wears me out just thinking about it. Each week we bring on high-performing dads like you, entrepreneurs like Jesse Itzler, CEOs like David Cancel from Drift.com, Athletes like Ken Rideout, best-selling children's authors like Zach Bush, to tell us your stories, your dad tips and tricks, to help all of us make it through dad life. We have a brand new website over at dadthebestican.com. Go on over to dadthebestican.com and sign up with your email. It's 100% free, of course. Be the first to hear brand new dad guests and get weekly dad tips in your inbox. Okay, enough out of me. On to today's show. All right, welcome to the Dad the Best I Can show. Today we are lucky to be joined by Hank McClarty. Hank is a former Auburn football player. He's the founder of Gratis Capital, Atlanta's premier wealth management firm. And he is a dad. Hey, Hank, how's it going today? Doing great, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Where are you calling in from? Well, I'm actually over at my office at Gratis Capital. You're in Atlanta, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I think we're, uh, we used to be neighbors in a former life. I'm in Roswell, and we're down the street from your alma mater, Roswell High. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the Hornets, the mighty Hornets. Yes, we went to a couple games this year. It's a fun time for the kids. Yeah, that uh, that whole environment up there has changed a great deal since I grew up uh, in Roswell. But uh, that's certainly where the whole football career got started for me. Yes. So you are a dad. How old are your kids now? Uh, my kids are 23 and about to graduate college and 21 will be graduating next year. Awesome. So I want to talk uh, football, finance, fatherhood. But before we start, we, we have to talk about this Alabama-Auburn game. My friend Jason down the street told me to ask you if you have one second. He said you know what that means. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like the one second thing always seems to apply with uh, the Auburn-Alabama game. I uh, It was a special weekend, actually, because I was on the 1989 team, which was the first time that um, Alabama ever came to Auburn was in 1989. And 
So we, uh, they were ranked number one in the country at the time, and we had a couple of losses, and they were definitely predicted to win the game. And um, it was a, a huge, huge night. Um, they came in, and we beat them. And, um, and so our team from 30 years ago was honored this past Saturday as the team from 2019 was preparing to play Alabama in a very similar situation. So our team from 30 years ago, we got to do the tiger walk and walk with the team to the stadium and the fans were amazing. And we got to go out on the field with our former head coach, Pat Dye, who was, you know, my coach when I was there. And, um, and then my dad and I got to be on the sideline for the whole second half, which was any of any of you that watched that game. know it was an insane football game, especially the fourth quarter. And my dad and I were, were literally right there when that field goal hit the upright. It was, the ball landed about 30 feet from us. And then, of course, the fans stormed the field. And uh, it was just a great time to be there with my dad, a great time to be there with my former teammates and roommates. It was just a really special day. And, of course, we beat Bama. So <laughs> yes. that added a little icing on the cake, too. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Hank McClarty, the early years. Can you talk about your your come up, your football career? Yeah, yeah. So I um, I really don't even know why. Like my uh, my sophomore year in high school, um, I had never been a starter for my football team uh, either in little league or or high school. I was a decent athlete, but not a great athlete. But for some reason, my sophomore year in high school, I decided. Uh, to set a goal that I was going to get a scholarship to play college football. And, you know, for anybody listening, understanding high school and college football, usually people that get scholarships to play college football at a major college, they're a dominant player on their team. They've been starting since their sophomore or even maybe freshman year. And, you know, they're a standout. And um, I wasn't even, like I said, I wasn't even starting for my team. I was barely starting for the JV team my 10th grade year. So, you know, as I went into my junior year and I still wasn't a starter, but I was, I was working out all the time. You know, a lot of my friends were experimenting with alcohol and marijuana and so forth. And, um, I, you know, I spent my weekends running sprints up at the school and constantly working out and just pursuing this goal. But at the end of my junior year, I still wasn't a starter for the team. And I was like, this, uh, this goal is kind of seeming pretty far out there. I need to change the scenario. So, um, I told my dad, I said, dad, I got to get out of town. I got to get away from my girlfriend and friends and distractions. I got to go somewhere and really focus and see if I can have an amazing senior year. And so, um, he had a friend that lived in Kentucky that had a small cabin on the Ohio river and, um, had connections with a horse farm. So I drove up to Lexington. Gosh, I was only 16 at the time. Um, I lived in this cabin up in Kentucky uh, for the summer by myself. And now that my sons are 23 and 21, I can't even imagine letting my sons go live somewhere by themselves <laughs> when they were 16. But for some reason I did. And um, so I'd get up every morning and go to the high, the local high school and run. And um, then I'd go throw hay on this, um, on this horse farm and paint fences all day. And then I'd go to wildcat gym there in, in Lexington and I'd work out every afternoon. And it was, um, it was a lonely summer. I turned 17 up there and, um, you know, hardly knew anybody. But um, I think uh, when I came back to Roswell High School in August for football practice to get started and my coaches saw I'd gotten in amazing shape that summer and my coaches saw me and 
I remember them saying, you know, this, this could be the year for you. Like, you know, you look amazing. You've been working out really hard. And so, um, you know, the first couple of games that year were okay. Uh, I was playing middle linebacker and, and then the third game was against our arch rival, uh, Milton high school. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know what happened in that game. I got, I got, I guess I got in what they call the zone, but, um, man, I mean, this seemed like I had every tackle in that game and, um, just had an incredible game and there was no scouts there to see me, but there were some scouts there to see some players on the other team. And I had such an incredible game that, uh, the next day I got full scholarship offers on a Saturday after that Friday night game from Auburn and, um, from Tennessee and then more would more would follow from um, from Kentucky and Georgia so you know I ended up uh, at the end of that season signing a full scholarship with Auburn and I had a fantastic senior year but that's kind of uh, that's kind of where everything got started in terms of me uh, being able to play play football at Auburn and um, you know then I I signed that scholarship and couldn't seem to get out of my head you know, am I really good enough to be going to play football at Auburn? I mean, my gosh, I wasn't even able to be a starter at my high school until my senior year. And uh, when I got over to Auburn and looked around me, I mean, I, I felt like a boy about around a bunch of grown men. I mean, these were amazing athletes. They were huge. And um, it was uh, a little bit intimidating. And so we <laughs> we got over there and our first few days as freshmen in freshman practice, um, you know, I was holding my own, but then we had our first day in full pads with the, with the seniors, uh, or the rest of the upperclassmen. And, you know, the first thing they do when you're a freshman is throw you up against the all Americans and the seniors, because you're kind of like the new meat on the team that they can <laughs> see if you can hold your own or not. So very first day in full pads at Auburn, uh, they lined the linebackers up across about five yards away from the offensive linemen. And, of course, they lined me up as a freshman against Jim Thompson, who was a, a senior All-American. He's like 6'6", you know, 300 pounds, and which is big. But in, in the 80s, that was monstrous. You know, he was he was uh, well-known around the country and so forth. And I, I saw them lining me up to go against him. And I was like, oh, my God, like this. I can't believe this is the first guy I'm going to have to go against. And so, you know, I had been working out really hard. I mean, my work habits were amazing. I, you know, my talent was pretty, was okay, but my work habits were really, really strong. And so they, I was, you know, I was strong from working out. Well, they lined me up against him and I just, I thought this guy was going to break me in half, but somehow when they blew the whistle and I got so low to the ground because I knew if he got under me that he would, you know, he would flip me over. So this was a drill where it's not over until somebody's on, they let you go until somebody's on their back. So uh, they blew the whistle and I fired out and I stayed really, really low. And somehow I got underneath them. And, you know, next thing I know, uh, I had him on his back and I was like in a state of shock, you know, and just lost. I'm swinging and trying to keep him on his back and screaming. And my linebacker coach came over and he was a, he was a character, man. He had, he had braces on both upper and lower teeth and he always had like half a can of dip in his mouth. And so he came over and grabbed me by the face mask and started screaming, you know, you kicked his ass, you kicked his ass. I can't believe it. Of course, dips flying in my face and I'm all wound up. And then of course they made me keep going against him and going against him. And his coach is screaming at him, you know, you let a freshman beat you. And so uh, we had to go at it four or five more times. And finally he got the best of me, but 
you know, I'll tell you, I had a great day that day and all the tackling drills and everything, but I, it took every ounce of me to keep up. And, um, I remember coming in the locker room after that first day in full pads, going through all the drills and the coach telling me that I had a great day, but I, I remember going into the locker room and thinking, um, wow, this is SEC football. Like I literally had to fight to the death every second. I was, this doesn't come easy to me. Like, this is what it's going to be like for the next four years. And, um, you know, I, I struggled a little over the next three years. I was a struggle. Um, I seemed to, I, I got awards for most improved in the off season. Cause again, my work ethic was never in question. It was just, I, I just, these guys were amazing. Some of the best athletes in the world, at this school that were so strong and so fast. And I felt like I was really fighting hard just to kind of keep up. And, um, my sophomore year, one of the coaches came up behind me and he was just trying to inspire me. He didn't mean to do anything by it, but, um, he came up behind me and, you know, kicked me. I was, I was kind of bent over in a stance and he kicked me in the ass and said, you know, come on, McClarty, let's go. You know? And, uh, when he, did when he kicked me in the ass I don't he didn't mean to but his toe hit like right on the end of my tailbone and it it felt like a thousand volts went straight up my spine he just kind of hit I guess a funny bone or a nerve or something and it was such intense pain that I I lost it and I spun around and I grabbed him uh in anger and my head coach Mm -hmm. was in the tower watching practice and he happened to be looking down when I I guess it appeared to him, which I guess I did. I guess I attacked my coach. So they ran me off the field and um, basically told me they were going to run me. Um, you know, they were going to run me uh, after practice till I puked every day until they felt like I'd had enough. And so this, I'd go to practice and uh, the coaches were so angry at me. And then they ran me every day after practice. And so I called my dad who was uh, in Las Vegas at the time working and I said listen dad I I think I'm out I I don't want to do this anymore I want to quit and um, you know they should have been running me you know you don't turn on a coach but I was a immature uh, kid at the time and and so uh, I told my dad I'm out so he said don't do anything and within I don't know eight or ten hours he was in Auburn at the athletic dorm and I was sitting in the car with him about 250 pounds, just crying like a baby, you know, crying, they whine. And these, these coaches are, they hate me. I don't need to be here. I need to move on. And, um, you know, my dad said to me, uh, probably the greatest lesson anybody's ever said to me, he said, it's your scholarship. And, um, you know, if you want to go somewhere else and we didn't have a lot of money at the time, so I would have been, it's not like I could have just switched and he would have picked up tuition. I mean, it was just, it wasn't a good financial time for us. So I don't know what I would have done, but he said, it's your scholarship. If you want to quit, I'm not going to keep you from doing it. But, um, I want you to know that if you quit now, then as you go through life, when times are tough, you're going to find it easier and easier to quit. And I hope that you don't make that decision. And of course I was, he put it right back on me, which is what he should have done. I got out of the car angry cause he didn't give me an out. And I realized, you know, there's, I can't, there's no way I can, how can I walk away from this with what he just said to me? You know, I, I'm, I'm basically setting myself up for failure letter later if I'd, so I stayed with it and I stuck it out and they finally quit running me till I puked after every practice and, you know, things got better. And, um, things got a lot better and I learned a lot from that 
experience of uh, things being really tough and wanting to give up and then, um, you know, kind of hanging in there. Don't make decisions to walk away from something until when they're at their worst, because you're never going to make a wise decision in that moment. Um, so that was a, mm -hmm. a great lesson I learned. I learned from him. But mm -hmm. yeah, so uh, my junior year, uh, I was ready to go. I'd been progressing. My dream of being a college football player was there and I was getting ready to be a starter and everything was going great. And then um, right when we started practice in the summer, um, I lost about 20 pounds over a five day period. Nobody could figure out why my strength was going down rapidly and I hit a guy in practice in a drill that normally I would have dominated this guy. And not only did it knock me down, it knocked me out. And uh, I woke up packed in uh, bags of ice. My temperature was like 105 and the, uh, the training crew for the, for the team were all surrounding me and the doctors were called and so forth. And, so uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and then ended up being that I had this blood disease that was uh, attacking my immune system. And, you know, long story short, they decided that my immune system was uh, so weakened by this blood disease that they weren't going to let me play anymore. So I went on a uh, what they call a medical scholarship where I was still on full scholarship for school, but I was not allowed to play football anymore. And, um, you know, that started a, uh, a very depressing time in my life because I had been working for this goal, you know, for a very long time and, you know, being a significant contributor to the team and, and, and really being um, what I had dreamed of being was kind of right there. And then all of a sudden I was told I couldn't play anymore. So I, um, I quit going to classes for a few weeks, wouldn't get out of bed, you know, went through the only time in my life that I know of that I was like physically and mentally depressed and couldn't really couldn't function. But, um, you know, I got through it and had to become a, a decent student after that and start focusing on what the rest of my life was going to look like. But, um, you know, coach Dye was an awesome head coach. And fortunately I got to see him this past weekend when I was over in Auburn, but, you know, he, he put us through a lot. I mean, anybody that knows college football from back in those days, they know he was kind of a Bear Bryant type coach. He was a hard ass. Um, you know, he beat us up pretty good. Uh, but he would always say that he was preparing us not just for the game that weekend or for the season coming up. He was preparing us for life. And having gone through some of the things I've gone through in my life, I totally respect and appreciate where he was coming from. Although at the time I really didn't get it, you know, <laughs> but I'm really yeah. honored and grateful to have been a part of his program. And he's just an, he's an amazing man. And, um, sometimes in immaturity and, and youth, you don't realize how great some of the leaders are around you until you, you get further on in life and kind of figure out what they were talking about, you know? Yeah. I mean, what are you, 19, 20 years old? That's a, yeah. a lot of, a lot of things to be going on for a kid. And as you were telling that story, I'm the whole time picturing, uh, Rudy, you know, I think the, they stole the screenplay from your life. That was, <laughs> although you got the scholarship but between the, uh, the drills and everything. That's an yeah. incredible story. They need to option that for a movie one of these days. Uh, yeah, that would be, uh, I like the Rudy movie. I don't know if mine qualifies for that, but it certainly, uh, <laughs> It certainly was uh, a journey, you know, to get to that point. But, you know, I learned, like I said, I mean, you know, thinking about quitting, um, setting a goal that frankly, nobody in my life uh, would have ever assumed that I could have achieved uh, from where I started and learning that if I just worked my ass off that, you know, I, 
there's a not there's not a lot out there that I couldn't accomplish if I really focused on something and worked harder than everybody else. So a lot of valuable lessons came from that process, even though I never got to be, you know, that significant contributor uh, on the field for Auburn. I learned a ton from that whole process that I just described to you. Yeah, and just a preview for the rest of the story, I'm sure you can agree with the fact that you're going to learn most of your lessons through failure, unfortunately, which uh, to have to go through some of those things at that young age is awful at the time. But, you know, that probably did make you into the person and the dad that you ended up becoming. Yeah, for sure. It definitely laid a foundation, um, you know, for for whatever it is that I'm good today. It definitely laid that foundation. (laughs) So do you think you got that fire and all that from your parents from your dad or do you think that is that how he was how did you become this so driven and willing to just throw yourself into the fire you know that's a good question I don't think uh I don't think you know my dad was not a goal-oriented person my mom wasn't my brother and it was just the four of us so it's I honestly don't there's I don't know where that came from. Um, you know, I started working out when I was in like the seventh grade. Um, I, so I'm not really sure. Uh, I remember when I was maybe, uh, maybe first grade, I remember, you know, back in the day, there was no cable. It was just ABC, CBS, and NBC. And every Sunday night they had the CBS movie. And I, I remember I was in the first grade and the CBS movie that Sunday night, uh, was Rocky. And, uh, my dad, you know, I had to go to bed like 8.30 or I don't even remember, but it was certainly before a nine o'clock movie was coming on on Sunday night. And I remember begging my dad. I, you know, I was so interested in seeing this movie that I'd heard about this, this Rocky movie. And so I remember watching that movie. My, I begged and begged and begged. And then they let me stay up for a little while to watch some of this movie. And um, I remember asking my dad after said, you know, I want to be I want to work out like he did. I want to do some of those things like he did. Will you show me? And so then even though my dad did not work out at the time, you know, he showed me how to do push ups and sit ups and squat jumps and so forth. And then I asked him, would he test me every week? And so every Sunday we would he would say, "Okay, last week you did this many push ups. You know, last week you did this many sit ups. And so that became like a thing, even though he didn't do them, but he would test. And I don't know, my brother had no interest in that. None of my friend, I just, I really don't know why, but at a very early age, I was, I was focused on setting goals and, you know, uh, working out and and different things like that. And I don't really honestly know where it came from. Yeah, it's incredible. And now we're just at what, 21, 22 years old. And and now we're going to get into your transition from football into your finance career. And this is what really kind of gave me chills hearing besides your football story, just your meteoric rise in finance and then uh, what transpires in the middle of that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about yeah. your transition into finance and, and moving into the career world? Yeah. So I, I will talk about all the success I had in an early age and, and we'll get to the downfall here in a minute. So as I talk a, a little bit about all the success I had, just know that it's about to come with a massive dose of humility. So <laughs> I say, <laughs> I say uh, these things not to, to brag or talk about myself, but it's just, uh, you're about to hear the kind of the downside of it as well. So anyway, yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, right out of college, I started with Merrill Lynch. Um, I came to Atlanta with a finance degree and, you know, I, I had no experience in sales or experience with finance or I just had a degree. And so, I kind of graduated as a 
as a guy that worked out a lot, had former football player and a, and a degree, but not really any experience. And so an alumni from Auburn uh, had all of his money at Merrill Lynch and Buckhead. And I, I interviewed with all the banks and brokerage firms in Atlanta. Nobody would hire me. <clears throat> and frankly, now that I own a company, I'm not sure I would have hired me either. But <laughs> but um, <laughs> this I had lunch with this alumni one day and he, I was you know, complaining to him that I couldn't get anybody to hire me. So, well, let me make a call over to my, my branch at Merrill Lynch where I have my money. And so anyway, he made a call over and told me I should talk to the manager there. And I did, they weren't really interested. So I kind of went over there and sat on the steps outside the office. I knew who the manager was. Um, and I waited on him and, and just basically pestered him until he gave me a chance to talk to him. And he said, all right, we'll give you a chance to take the Series 7, and if you pass it, we'll keep you. If you don't, then we're not going to, you know, we'll fire you immediately. In the meantime, you can go get lunches and move furniture, and you can wear jeans to work, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't the glamorous situation that I had had uh, envisioned. But anyway, I passed the Series 7. I started cold calling for Merrill Lynch and hated every minute of it. Um, you know, I was cold calling out of a book of list of names and we had goals that we had to hit um, as they called us rookies, you know, so we were new to the firm and we had goals that we had to hit to kind of advance to be on a, on a different type of pay situation. And so um, we had to bring in a certain level of assets and new, new clients and new revenues and so forth. And we had, you know, quarterly hurdles that we had to hit and I was falling behind on those and I was cold calling all day long and at night I'm just kind of tired of people hanging up on me and telling me to screw off. And so one day, uh, I was getting pretty fed up with this and, and thought about, you know, that word I used earlier, quitting. And um, I cold called a company here in Atlanta and the guy picked up the phone and he cussed me out worse than any football coach ever cussed me. And he <laughs> he's like, you know, you sorry, mother effer, you know, calling me and you guys call me all day long. I'm sick of your ass. You know, just went on and on and on and just dropping F-bombs left and right. And, um, and he kind of caught me at a day where I was ready to quit anyway. And I said, screw this guy, man, I'm going to get my car and drive out there and confront him. And so <laughs> I, uh, I literally hung the phone up and I drove out to where this company was. And, uh, I think initially when I got in the car, I was thinking, I'm going to go out there and kick this guy's ass. Like what difference does it make? I'm going to quit anyway. But then I thought as I, as my temper lowered a little bit, as I got closer and closer to the company, I thought, you know, I'll just confront him and see if I can talk with him. You know, who knows what will happen. So I walk up and knocked on the door and this was a company um, that was growing rapidly, but on very low margins. So they didn't have a lot of support staff. So the CEO and this guy who was his partner, they didn't have secretaries that were answering the doors and so forth or assistants. So when I knocked on the door, he answered his own door. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm the mother effer that you just told to <laughs> F off on the phone. I wanted to come out here and see what I could do to earn your business. And I mean, I kind of got up in his face when I said it and he, his eyes got huge and he said, oh, well, you know, I didn't know you were going to come out here and I, you know, don't take it personal and, you know, come on in and let's talk for a few. And so I went in and I ended up spending, um, about three hours with this guy and he was, I remember he had a newspaper out and he was placing bets on all the sports sporting, you know, the games, the baseball, football, whatever. And so um, we talked about sports. We talked about life. He said, I'd really like you to meet my partner, the CEO. And, and we just kind of hit it off. And I started going out and having lunches with him pretty regularly. And 
I had no idea what I was doing at the time with investments, but I built rapport with them and I built a relationship with them. And so anyway, they, they were raising private equity money. And so they were, as they were going through this process, they secured private equity money and they called me up one day and they said, we want you to come out and pick up a check. We just got an investment in our company and we're not sure you know what you're doing hundred percent with investments, but you can find somebody, but we want you to have the money and you know, we'll find somebody in your firm to partner with you to help. And I, so I had no idea how much money it was going to be. <laughs> so I went out there and picked up a check for a little over $10 million and brought it back. And oh, my, wow. my goal for the whole program for a two year program was 10 million and I was behind my goals. And so then immediately I passed all my goals. I graduated from the program and I kind of became a star at the time, you know, and literally not too long after I was thinking about quitting. So, you know, there you go again. Don't, don't ever quit when, you know, when you're in a bad situation because you're never going to think straight about it. So I started thinking, you know, well, maybe I'm not the best with some of the fundamentals due to inexperience, but confronting people, being honest, working hard, that kind of thing. I think maybe I can do this business. So, I set a goal at that point to, um, I wanted to make a million dollars by the time I was 30. At the time I was 23. And so uh, didn't quite know how I was gonna do it, but other than just take amazing care of my clients and, and work really hard. So by the time I was 30, you know, I was married. I had two amazing sons um, that were four and two, and uh, was making over a million dollars and, um, you know, my career continued to progress. I, I moved my team from Merrill Lynch to Morgan Stanley. And then by the time I was 34, I was ranked one of the top 50 advisors across all firms in the country. And, you know, I just had all this notoriety and awards and, um, you know, was on the cover of magazines. And, and uh, from a publicity and marketing perspective, I was kind of looking like the man. And I in my head, I think I started believing I was a man. <laughs> I was drinking my own Kool-Aid. So anyway, uh, yeah, Morgan Stanley was flying me around the country to talk to groups of advisors about how I built my business and, you know, how achieving success at such a young age. And so it was, uh, it was a, a really good time. And, um, and the, uh, the, the humility that I think is necessary to manage success was, was not something that I had a high degree of at that time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's incredible. It's such a young age to go through that. Uh, and then with young kids, I'm sure it's easy to, you know, kind of get on autopilot and coast. So then, then what was the, uh, the turn then when you're not even 30 years old, what happened then? Yeah, well, actually, when I, yeah, so I was like 34, um, the, um, I had achieved all this success and, um, I got an, I, I had another firm approach me and this other firm approached me to leave Morgan Stanley where I had, I had a, a fantastic team of, uh, nine people that I was working with. Um, so I had a great team. I had a great group of clients and, um, I was approached by this other firm. They wanted me to leave Morgan Stanley. It was a, a really neat approach that they had at this firm. I won't go into a lot of details, but it was just a really neat, like a family office approach. And, you know, they, they had already opened offices in Boca Raton and in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they had pulled in some teams from um, Merrill Lynch and, and at the time Smith Barney. And these were top-notch teams. I went and visited their offices and I was like, okay. And so they wanted me to leave 
and come join them in Atlanta, which is where their headquarters were going to be. And they were going to pay me a, uh, an awful lot of money up front to do this, along with continuing to pay me you know, the money that I've been earning. So I introduced my top clients to this firm's CEO. I, interviewed a f- I, I introduced a, a few of my team members at Morgan Stanley to the, this new firm's CEO, and everybody thought it was great. And so everything was going really, really well. And I went into Morgan Stanley and I resigned. And uh, Morgan Stanley was not at all happy about me resigning. Um, And so I left Morgan Stanley to go over to this new firm. And I called the new firm, which was about a half a mile away in another building. And I said, I just resigned. I'm on my way over. And they said, oh, we thought you were resigning tomorrow. And then the, uh, the famous words of our next round of funding is coming in tomorrow. We want to make sure and give you your check when you arrive. And so we'd like you to come in tomorrow. I'm like, okay, you know, fine. I know my clients are ready to go. They've, several of them have met the CEO. This is going to be no problem. Well, long story short, they never got their next round of funding and they went bankrupt. And mm-hmm. so um, my clients uh, throughout this process lost confidence in me. And I can't say that I blame them. Uh, my team at Morgan Stanley, who were fantastic, they were doing a great job, but I delegated so much to the other parts of the team. Um, they lost confidence in me. And so all of my team and all of my clients stayed at Morgan Stanley. So um, I had also gotten, as I said, pretty full of myself, lost some focus on my marriage. Um, and as a result of all of this and, and some of my, uh, I guess, ego and lack of focus, um, my wife and I divorced at that time as well. So the, um, the, the walls came come crumbling down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> before I knew it, um, I found myself living at a residence in a uh, motel, moving my son's bunk beds into the hotel. And... Um, you know, everything that I was worth at that point was based on the clients that I had and all the revenues that were being generated by these clients. And so I, I did not have uh, clients anymore. I didn't have a team anymore, which meant suddenly my value uh, to other firms that may be interested in bringing me on and so forth essentially went to zero. And so, um, you know, I literally almost overnight went from being on the cover of magazines and being, you know, the up and coming 34 year old superstar in this business to not knowing what my next job was going to be going through a divorce process, going to court, having all my previous years, tax returns looked at to determine what child support and alimony was going to be. Um, and, uh, just, going through an experience that I would not wish on anybody. And I'm not saying that other people have not gone through worse experiences, but for me, um, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. But at the same time, I, I don't wish it on anybody. I mean, it's uh, putting your kids to bed at night in bunk beds in a hotel and trying to keep a smile on your face while at the same time internally feeling like you're going to explode because you literally have no idea what you're going to do is, um, is what I felt. Um, it's what I felt every day, and um, I did not want my kids to see me. Um, I didn't want my kids to see me crying or upset. Um, so once I got them to bed, I would go sit outside on the steps, and that's where I would do that. But it was a nightly mm-hmm. thing. It was the first time in my life where 
I had no direction. I did not know what to do. And um, I'm usually really good. If I've got a plan, I can friggin' execute a plan, but I'd had no plan. And um, so it was a, it was a very uh, humbling time, but, but again, it's a time that I wouldn't trade for anything where I'm at today because it made me, it made me a, a, a much better father, a much better friend. I think the team that I work with now at my company, um, you know, I treat them in a way that I was not probably capable of treating them before because I was so full of myself. Um, so I think in every area of my life, life, it made me a better person. But, but again, it's, it's not something I want to go through a second time. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I do want to talk a lot about your, your comeback and we can talk about that at the end, but you're just hearing you talk a little bit about, uh, going through the divorce and I don't, how old were your kids at the time? Uh, they were four and six. Wow. So what, I know there are a lot of dads out there listening that are either going through that or have been through that. Is there advice? I can't imagine how isolating it is and how you do have to put up this, this front for your kids and kind of uh, hide some of your resentment and anger and everything. What is that like going through it? And what kind of advice could you give other dads going through that kind of time? Well, I think, um, you know, if I think back to that time, I mean, we're talking about 2005, so it was 15, 15 years ago. Um, you know, there was anger, resentment. Uh, if I could only get back what I had before, um, a lot of thoughts like that. Um, you know, once the divorce is final, you know, starting to, you know, thinking about starting to date. Well, uh, you know, there's not many, not many uh, dates you're going to bring back to the residence end. So I really, <laughs> felt, I really felt isolated in terms of I was in such a, to me, was an embarrassing, uncomfortable situation. I really wouldn't open up to anybody and I didn't want to tell anybody what was going on because I was ashamed of kind of what had happened. So not only was I going through this gut wrenching kind of feeling like losing my family. Um, it was also, as you said, I think a good word of isolation, um, of at least in my circumstances, feeling uncomfortable, you know, going to talk to someone about it or, talking to a new, you know, lady that I might have been interested in. I just kind of shut all that off because I didn't want to get into my situation um, because I'd, I'd lost kind of that confidence of the direction and the plan that I had. But I think one of the things that when I finally quit wanting things to go back to the way they were and realized that where they were going might be even better, um, that was a massive transition point. Um, when I quit wanting to have my old clients back and quit wanting to have my team back, even though they had never done anything wrong. But when I quit kind of living in the past of what used to be and started thinking about, okay, that's over. Now, what am I going to make of it in the future? That's when things really started to change. Um, and then I started looking at my ex-wife, who's obviously my partner in raising these children, um, I started treating her like a partner rather than the enemy. Then everything in our relationship dynamic shifted. Obviously, that took time. I mean, that doesn't happen overnight. But um, I consider her one of my close friends and her husband and I would we'd probably be best friends if they weren't married. I mean, he's an amazing mm -hmm. guy. But 
you know, when I needed to write a check and, and for an expense or something, and, and, and it was a, something that I probably could have contested, I just bit my tongue. You know, if she needed time and, I, and she wanted me to have the boys, I took the boys. You know, there was, I just tried to make things, unless it was a big issue that I needed to put my foot down, I tried to make things, take my ego out of as much as possible and just be gracious towards her and my sons. Um, and spend as much time with them. I'll tell you another massive turning point was I had told my kids because I played college football, I said, if either one of you ever want to play football, even though I'm not pushing you to, but if you ever want to play football, your first season, I'll coach you. And I'd said this long before this downfall. So I had much more time on my hands at that point. But <laughs> of course, in 2005, in August of 05, my son, right when I started my new company, and started to build a plan for the future. My older son said, dad, I want to play football at, um, at NYO, uh, which is, you know, a, a youth organization in Buckhead. Um, and so I said, Oh my gosh, you know, if there's ever a time I am not, I don't have the margin of the capacity to be a coach. I had never coached, you know, little league football in my life. I didn't even know what all was involved or this program or anything. So I, I paused when he asked me about that and, you know, maybe 30 seconds later, I said, a commitment's a commitment. I'll do it. You know, um, and he jumped up and down and said, okay, well, I know they're, the coaches are supposed to be there like tomorrow night to start drafting their teams. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, here we go. So I went over and got some of the other dad's coaches there to show me the ropes. And I mean, it was eight-year-old football. It was serious. I mean, these guys were serious about this. It was much more serious than I thought it would be. So I drafted my team. I got some help. And then you know, we had two practices a week and a game or we had three nights of the week committed to football, either with a game or, or practices. And um, I would go to work every day. I had, you know, I had my new company with one assistant and it was just me and her. That was it. Um, I would go to work every day and then I'd have to leave at like three thirty to go over to the fields, you know, three thirty or four to get ready for practice. And I'm in a panic mode every day because I don't have any clients yet. And I'm starting this company with no revenues and I have no business leaving the office to go coach a little league football practice. I mean, I have no business leaving. Like I am in desperation mode. I need to work more than 24 hours a day to kind of get this thing going. And I'm still enjoying the, you know, the residence in every day and all this is still going on. So I would, I would, um, I would drive over to the, the local coffee shop, run in there in my suit, change into my coaching clothes, drive over to the field, throw out the dummy, the blocking dummies and the equipment, you know, throw it down the hill on the field and run down there with just my brain going a million miles an hour about how I don't need to be here because I need to be working. And then as soon as those kids, as soon as those kids would get out on the field and I would get engaged in coaching them, um, and just, you know, watching, <clears throat> watching my son looking at me while I'm coaching his team and, you know, just so, so happy that I was there. Um, it, it was a, it was a really, really um, huge turning point for me because um, the two or three hours that I was out there coaching, I didn't think about anything but coaching. And I don't know that there's anything else on this earth that I could have gone and done that would have taken that stress off of my brain for two or three hours. Uh, there, I don't think anything else would have done it. 
And so what started off as a huge burden that, um, that I felt like I had no business. I did not have the privilege, the margin, the time. I had nothing. I had no reason to be going to do this coaching. And it was a detriment to this build business that I was supposed to be building. It turned out to be um, maybe one of the things that saved me. Hmm. Because the clarity that I had, the peace of mind that I had, when I would leave that practice, I would enjoy it so much. And I would, I would get this just sense of peace and I would leave practice after having not thought about no clients, no revenues. I hadn't thought about any of that for two or three hours. I would drive home from practice and I would just for a few minutes, I'd think somehow this is going to be okay. Like the stress was gone. And of course, you know, by the time I woke up the next morning, it was all back, but it was the only thing that it it was worth $5,000 an hour of therapy. I mean, it was just, and the bond that, and we, we ended up going undefeated that season and, and we lost in the championship, but I mean, we had no, I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing, it was the highlight of my life uh, at that time. And when I committed to do it, I thought this is going to be the end of me. Like I just committed to do something that's going to, and it ended up being possibly the thing that gave me the clarity when I was in the office to, to make the right decisions and to say the right things and focus on the clients as they slowly started coming in. Um, so I think, you know, two massive things happened. I quit trying to relive the past and started focusing on what the future was going to be. And I made my kids the priority because I think for somebody that cares about being a dad, making the kids the priority gives you such a sense of confidence as a dad that that carries through in other areas of your life. And, you know, when, when you don't feel like you're doing a good job as a dad and you feel like you're letting them down or letting yourself down, that carries through into other areas of your life as well. And it deteriorates your confidence in business and in other relationships when you don't, feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a father. So I think making them the priority um, is the one of the key essentials to someone that cares about their role as a father because it will carry through into other areas. And I think there's some dads out there that, you know, it was my company, even though it was suffering and, you know, had two employees and no revenues, I could set the hours that I wanted to. And I'm sure that there are some dads out there that say, oh, that sounds good, but I don't get off until this time or that time. But I don't think you have to coach. I mean, I think, you know, if your son wants to play football, then, you know, go out and make sure you're in the yard to make sure you're at the practices. You're in the yard throwing the football with them. You know, you're talking with them about it. You're engaged in it. I don't think it has to be putting yourself as the head coach if you can't live up to your other responsibilities. But I just think them knowing and you knowing that they are the priority allows you to be more confident and stronger and more healthy in other areas. If your children are a priority to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost counterintuitive that you're leaving work and not putting the time into your career, which you feel like is what am I doing coaching, you know, my kid's team, I'm coaching my kid's team too. And I have the same thoughts of, I'm driving 35 minutes to get out there, 40 minutes home. The game is a complete shit show. But after you come home and you see how happy your kids are, not only 
are you reaffirming their relationship with you? I mean, it really must be the most fulfilling thing. And like you said, it sounds like better therapy than, than anybody could get. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, <clears throat> it was a massive part of that, of that whole process. And, um, I still have pictures of, uh, of us <laughs> storming the field in the big game that we were supposed to lose. And it was, it was, uh, at the time in my life, it was bigger than the Auburn Alabama game. It was uh, eight year old mm-hmm. Pee Wee football at NYO with, you know, maybe a hundred fans on both teams there. Uh, and when we won that, the big game that we won, it was, uh, again, you know, you just have to take, you have to take little wins when you can get them. And I didn't have a lot of wins going on at that time. So it was, um, mm-hmm. it was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. That's an awesome story. And it is, I think today too, with, you know, everybody's your phones, your 24 seven on call for your clients, it, it can feel difficult to sacrifice, you know, what it feels like sacrificing your life, your career, but you know, it's, it is more important than ever to make those sacrifices for your kids. If nothing else, selfishly, it's gonna, it's gonna come back to reward you. It's a really powerful thing because, and I, I really resonate, it resonated with me hearing you say, this is the last thing I should be doing, or yeah. I have no business coaching and leaving my job because a lot of times once you have that feeling, you know, you say, eh, I'll, I'll skip practice today. I won't go to my kid's game, but you know, at the end of your life, you're not going to be happy that you went back to work that day for two more hours but you will miss going to your kid's game. And it's, it's very cliche to say that, but you do, you have to, you have to live it and you have to do it. And a lot of the time you don't really want to do it, but I think it's, you know, the payoff comes even an hour after the practice or the game. So it was really, uh, really awesome to hear you talk about that. Yeah. You know, I turned 50 this year and um, my birthday was in June and we had a party um, at my lake house and I don't know, maybe 30 friends were there, 30 close friends and a few family members and my sons were there and it was unplanned. But at some point at the dinner, um, you know, somebody, I, I stood up and thanked everybody for being there and we had a little battery powered microphone, you know, and somehow the microphone started going around the table and these, pay, these, these friends of mine were saying, um, overly gracious things to me, you know, about me, my character, being a dad, you know, whatever. And it was all very, very rewarding, um, a bit overwhelming. But the most overwhelming thing that happened was my oldest son stood up and he said, um, there's a lot of things that my dad and I and my brother have been through that most of you don't know about. And he said, but the one thing I can tell you that there's never been a day in my life that I didn't know that I was my dad's number one priority. And so, you know, obviously when he said that in front of all these people, it crushed me (laughs) in a, in a good way. But then I thought, you know, um, to be turning 50 and have my sons feel that way, then that means I'm, I'm a billionaire. Um, I'm, I'm a billionaire. I mean, I've won. Because no matter what I have in terms of net worth, lack of or more of, um, I've got two sons that, you know, on the day I die, then they're going to look at me and and say, well done. And that makes me a very, very rich man. 
and imagine the the modeling that you're doing for your kids when they're going to be parents is you know you've already made them good fathers to be so they're seeing you do it you're not just talking about it and you're you're really uh showing them how to how to be dads yeah hopefully not too soon though they're only 21 so give them a few years. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's hope let's hope they enjoy life a little bit before they uh Enjoy the, yeah. enjoy their freedom and not having a lot of responsibilities other than work because then you know then they'll have all those other responsibilities soon enough. Let's take a quick break for our dad tip of the week brought to you by Kickstart Reading. Do you have kids between the ages of three and six? I've got two boys, and when my older son was going into kindergarten, my wife and I quickly learned that we had no idea how to teach him how to read. We found Kickstart Reading and watched one two-minute video together, and you could see his confidence take off. Bonus, I felt like dad of the year. Here's another dad talking about how Kickstart Reading is helping his boys learn how to read. Hey there, this is Chris Heller, and I'm a big fan of Kickstart Reading. Each morning before school, I show a video to my four-and-a-half-year-old son, and now his little two-year-old brother is getting in on the action as well. I'm a big fan of the videos. Highly consumable and engaging for young boys. Definite recommend for all parents out there who are looking to get their kids off to the right start with reading. Kickstart reading. Go to kickstartreading.com and use the code DAD to get 65% off right now. That's D-A-D, DAD. See? It works. Kickstartreading.com. Now back to the show. Do you think you can share one dad tip for other dads out there? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the ones I think of a lot and I talk to a lot of my friends about almost all of my friends have, you know, much younger kids. Um, I think, uh, you know, never, uh, never sacrifice being a dad for sake of being a friend. Um, and what I mean by that is I think kids, even my kids, 23 and 21, I mean, I'm pretty much done parenting them. You know, one of them's about to graduate college. The other one is going to next year. But I think kids desperately want leadership. I think they want discipline, you know, fair discipline. I think they want to be led. They want to be taught. They want to know what your rules are. They want to test your rules, but they want to know that you care enough to enforce the rules. Um, that gives them a sense of security. It gives them a structure. It lets them know you care enough to, I mean, it's much easier to just give in to things and not have to have those tough discussions or not take the keys away or tell them they can't go to this event or, you know, take their PlayStation away or whatever it is, however, whatever's important to them. But I think um, it's great to have fun with your kids and it's great to laugh with them and, you know, play sports with them and see movies with them or go fishing with them or whatever your hobbies are that you enjoy doing with them. But I think if you, if you sacrifice that leadership quality that they are, they need so desperately from us as parents for sake of just having good times with them, then I think you're letting them down. Um, you're not making it easier for them. You're preparing them to, for life to be very tough later when they have to understand what discipline and responsibility all of those things that we all know as adults come with life. They need to learn from us by being leaders and parents rather than just friends, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Tons. And it is the temptation. And like you said, it's easier to be the friend, but you know, they've got plenty of friends. What they need us 
to do is to make them feel secure. And sometimes that entails being the bad guy and having them say they hate us and all these things, but that's, that's part of being a dad. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Hank, let's uh, lighten the mood here for a little bit. Hank, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yes, I am. All right. Hank McClarty, what is the first car you ever owned? Uh, 1984 Ford Bronco. What is your favorite meal to eat for dinner? Oh, gosh. Um, If I'm going to cheat, I guess lasagna is my favorite, but uh, I don't eat it very often because I'm not a huge uh, cheat meal guy. But if I'm going to cheat, I love lasagna. What is your favorite movie? We'll start with drama. Uh, gosh. Um, okay. This is going to sound cheesy, but I guess, uh, probably gladiator, uh, only because I love, I love movies like gladiator, Braveheart, movies like that, where the character is, um, fighting for something that's much bigger than themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of in the middle of a flow going towards uh, a mission or something that's much bigger than themselves. And, um, I think we all kind of crave to be in that kind of a mission in some aspect of our life. So I I've watched both of those probably 500 times. Yeah, that's a great one. I thought you were going to say Rocky, another uh, similar story. What about a comedy? You ever lighten the mood? What's your favorite comedy movie? Yeah. What's the, uh, Oh gosh, the football movie with Burt Reynolds and Adam Sandler. Uh, Oh, I'm trying to, I mean, I'm yeah. saying it's my, one of my favorites. The prison I, one. Yeah. I'm saying it's one of my favorites and I can't even think of the name. Well, longest yard. Yeah. Longest, longest yard. yard. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes. Uh, do you have a favorite live concert that you've seen? You know, only cause it's top of mind. I recently went, uh, I saw this, this, supposedly final tour of Elton John recently with a group of friends. And, um, I, I like, you know, I like hard rock music and so forth, but Elton John's concert was great just because, you know, it's hard not to know all the words to his songs. And the, uh, we were with a great group of friends and just had a great time. So that was recent. And that was definitely uh, one of the better concerts I've seen. I thought it was really good. And lastly, what is your most memorable athletic achievement? Um, I get, well, I mean, obviously getting, you know, earning that goal, uh, working really hard, getting that goal to, to play at Auburn. I think, you know, that's probably the achievement. It, you know, memory would probably be running out of the tunnel the year we played Alabama for the first time in Auburn in 1989, because it's the only time in my life I can ever remember where I couldn't feel my feet hitting the ground. <laughs> the uh, the adrenaline awesome. and the energy was so huge that um, I literally could not feel you know my feet as they hit the ground and it was uh, it was an amazing amazing night so yeah I doubled up on that answer <laughs> well and also your coaching moment of your kids uh, winning or getting to the true, championship that's true. gonna be up there as well yeah yep yep that that would be that would that would be if you asked me my my probably my greatest achievement as a father. <laughs> Oh yeah. That's, that's a great one. One of them. We just won our first, uh, basketball game. We scored six points, but somehow the other team only scored two. So we got a lot of work to do in that category, but it's, it is fun and and rewarding. Well, you got the W though. Exactly. That's what I told them. So let's talk a little bit about where you're at now. You're, uh, you're founded gratis capital and you've come a long way since, uh, those low moments. Talk a little bit about, uh, what you guys do at gratis. 
Yeah. So uh, when I started the company with uh, with a receptionist, you know, as I mentioned, when I was coaching that football team, um, you know, I, I started the company and, and this was when I started looking forward and not looking backwards. Um, and even naming the company, you know, I wanted to I, I didn't want our, the name of our company to have anything to do with Wall Street or money or, of course, my last name. And so um, I named the company Gratis Capital because Gratis is the word for the Latin word for grateful. And um, I wanted to build a wealth management firm that was founded on the principles of gratitude with uh, the people that we hire on the team, with our clients that we would that we would do wealth management in a very different way. And we're really in the business at my firm of taking care of people. Um, so we started, I started the company in 2005, um, you know, with no clients and really just a name that said grateful. And over the last 15 years, um, we've grown dramatically. Um, we're, we're now uh, over 2 billion in assets and we're ranked by Forbes as one of the top hundred firms uh, in the United States out of like 500,000 firms. So we've had uh, phenomenal growth and um, we have a, a, a great, great talented team here of uh, investment managers and advisors and financial planners and CPAs and attorneys. And um, we just had a, a great level of success. Um, and and we have a, a wonderful group of clients that we work with, both here in Atlanta and Birmingham and Palm Beach, Florida, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and just and then, and then pretty much every state in the United States, we have a client exposure somewhere. But those are our concentrations of clients. Yeah, and I know, I mean, it, it is, I, I know a lot of people in the wealth management business, and it is really a people business. And just listening to you today, you can see why you know, people want to people, why people connect with you and why people trust you and, you know, that you are looking to take care of them in more ways than just their investments. It's, it is really is a, a life planning thing. So I think that's really uh, admirable what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, you know, I, I, uh, I have led this firm, you know, since I started it and, um, you know, our, I use the word passion constantly when I talk with my team here and when I talk with our clients. Um, you know, even our even our vision statement for the firm is to uh, passionately empower our clients, employees, and community to live, grow, and give. And so, you know, we do a ton of community service work. Um, we we work very closely as a team, and we work very closely with our clients. But I just think the word passion. How many times do you associate the word passion with wealth management? You know, I mean, it's not it's not often you hear those words in the same sentence together. Um, so, you know, my job here at the firm is to make sure that we passionately take care of our clients like their family um, and that we passionately look out for each other as team members. And that when we're in the community doing our our quarterly community service projects, that we show up you know, passionately wanting to impact this area of the community, whatever it is we're working on. And so um, even back in the early days when I had a great deal of success, I just, I don't see a lot of people in this business happy. I don't see them passionately wanting to take care of clients and come work in their office with their teams and so forth. And I think that's one of the reasons we've had so much success is that um, our team cares a great deal. And that starts at the top. It's my job to make sure that 
no matter how much we grow as we execute our vision over the next 10 years, that we, um, we maintain that level of passion because I truly believe that's what makes us such, so special and why we've had so much success with our clients. Yeah, I mean, you certainly walk the walk and just hearing the way you talk about your family, I think would instantly show people what kind of man you are, what kind of father you are, and how that translates into your business as well. Real quick to end it, I, I wanted to talk to you, I heard you speak about the, you talk a lot about, you know, spending time with your kids and your business, but I know spending time with your friends is a big part of your life and that you have a, your, your big five, I think you talked about. <laughs> I think a lot of dads kind of get, get lost as they get, you know, hit 30 or 40 with kids that we do lose that kind of connection with our friends, but it is such an important part of, you know, a dad's life. Why is that so important to you and what kind of things are you doing with your friends and, and who are you choosing to spend your time with? Yeah. So, uh, it's, <laughs> you were close. It's not the big five. It's the great eight. So, um, I have, um, I have a group of friends. There's eight of us, you know, we're, we call ourselves the great eight. Um, and uh, we get together for dinner every month um, and we hold each other accountable as uh, fathers um, and we set goals with our business. We set goals personally with our fitness. And I mean, we probably get, I don't know, 25 texts a day within our little grade eight text group of how did this meeting go? How did your workout go? Did you hit your goal? You know, and then uh, it's, it's constant. And then, you know, a lot of our meetings are, we're presenting or updating our goals to the group and so forth. And I think the most important thing about this group is that whenever I've had a success and they've been around, they almost seem more happy about my success than I am. And so I think having that group, that core group of people in your life that literally want more for you than you even want for yourself and are genuinely happy and, and excited when you have achievements and they're sad or they're let down when you don't and they want to help. Um, having people that are not envious of success or that just, you know, it's a pure relationship. And so, I mean, we've all got friends that would much rather have us out drinking with them or, you know, doing things that are going to pull us away from our focus or our goals. Um, but I, I think, you know, you've heard that statement. You are the, the top five people you spend the most time with. You become those five people. And so if you're hanging out, if your top five people include people that are pulling you down and could care less about you becoming a better leader, a better father, a better husband, or, you know, whatever your role is, um, then that's what you're going to gravitate towards. If you are surrounding yourself with people that literally inspire you and challenge you and you don't want to disappoint them because you care so much about their opinion of you and in a good way, in a healthy way, you care about their opinion of you and you want to succeed because they're going to be literally more excited about your success than you are, then you're going to gravitate. You're going to push yourself. I don't want to disappoint these guys. I mean, anytime I speak or you know, if I, if I break a personal record at the gym or whatever, the first thing I do is update them. And the first thing I get is seven responses back almost immediately, like way to go. I start getting phone calls. How did it go? How did you feel? Whatever. Um, it's a critical component of my discipline, my habits, and me not wanting to disappoint this group. And I, I say disappoint in a healthy way, not not in an, um, an unhealthy way, but it's just, 
it's a critical thing to have. I think especially, gosh, if I'd have had that going on when I was going through living in a hotel, if I'd have had this group of men in my life at that time, then things would have been, they would, I, I mean, I think they've turned out really well, but the pain and uh, everything that I was going through, if I would have just had this group to push me and, and just to bounce things off of, it would have made things significantly different and better uh, during that time period. Yeah, it's awesome to hear. And it is something that takes intention and effort, especially as you get older, you know, you're used to cruising through the college days with your college friends. And at a certain point, especially once you start having kids, you do have to maybe shed some of the fat and, and make choices and, you know, connect with, with people that are more, that resonate more with your beliefs and goals. So that's great to hear. And I think a lot of dads, we need to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, Hank. Hank McClarty, it was such a pleasure hearing your story. Uh, really incredible. I, I have to give you a war eagle, even though I'm not an Auburn guy, but thank you so much for being on the Dad the Best I Can podcast. Where can, where can people learn more about you and, and, and follow what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Uh, great question. So, uh, you know, our website, uh, gratiscapital.com. That's G-R-A-T-U-S gratiscapital.com um, or email, you know, info at gratiscapital.com. Um, and then we're also on LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn um, at Gratis Capital. So um, yeah, people can get in touch with me, my team uh, at those locations and, and would love to hear from anybody that wants to learn more. All right, Hank, really a pleasure. I appreciate you sharing your story and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure of mine as well. Thank you guys for listening to the Dad the Best I Can show. Go take five seconds, hop on over to dadthebestican.com and sign up with your email to get weekly updates, dad tips in your mailbox, get your questions answered on the show. That's dadthebestican.com. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Actually, five stars. We could do better than that. Brooks? Infinity stars, Cameron, how many stars? Infinity thousand. Infinity thousand. You got to one-up them in this household. Thanks. See ya.